0: Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is September 25th. That's a Monday. It's getting dark pretty quick. Like, it's, it's Monday evening. I'm, I'm off work, sitting here doing the pod, and I'm watching it kind of windy. Sun is already down. It's getting dark, and this brings me back to fall. And it was a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I was sitting on a train, I think it was between France and Milan in Italy, and I was reading a book, um, a book on MBS, (laughs) and I put the book down and just stared out the window for about an hour, and there was this overcoming feeling of just nostalgia for something I couldn't even remember why I was nostalgic for it. And for the rest of my trip, whether it was seeing my Spanish family in Madrid going up to Switzerland with my mom at the French Riviera about a year ago. For the rest of the trip, I tried to dig deep and understand why these nostalgic thoughts that were just pulling me back were there, and I realized it was fall in Europe. So I'm going to start the podcast off just a little bit different today. Don't worry, we're going to get into depressing topics like Ukrainian Nazis, sarcastic terrorism, and Trump calling for the execution of General Milley. And we're going to talk about... (laughs) the Heritage Foundation and its fundraising attempt to basically reverse engineer Trump's propaganda into policy. So don't worry, we are definitely going to talk a lot of politics and all that jazz. But anyways, I'm just going to read you guys what I wrote on that train a year ago, because I don't know, I, I just like sharing my thoughts on travel, why it's important, but also why to this day, I am still trying to find ways to get back there. So basically I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of it because it's pretty long. But I said, back in 2018, I moved to Spain, Las Rosas, Madrid, for my second year of teaching, and I I immediately fell at home in the town. That's a story for another time. However, I found myself enjoying September and October there. There was a specific feeling that was hard to define, and it still is. When I went to Pamplona in October of 2018 to take the LSAT, law exam, for law school, I found myself second-guessing taking the test, but I also found myself feeling the fall all around me. October in Spain was just magical and different. After the craziness of the summer, the city knew it was changing like the season. On my other trip to northern Spain in late October, I also felt immersed in the fall that Spain had to offer. As the colors continued to change and then fall off the trees, I felt like the change was occurring inside of me as well. I write this now because as I'm sitting on a train heading to Milan, the route is passing through the foothills of Italy. And once again, I have the same feeling as I did back in 2018. The nostalgia of the adventures, the good times, the pre-COVID era, the feeling of youth, but also of growing older. As the train is moving through northern Italy, trees are changing, clouds are changing, and summer, I know, is over. While I used to wonder about this feeling and why it is all of a sudden coming back, I realize that it is coming back because I love autumn in Europe. It's unlocked something in me. I also associate the fall of 2018, therefore this moment seems parallel, and I associate the fall of 2018 with the time of important transition and discovery in my life. I don't know if it was the happiest time of my life, but it was maybe the most important. Looking back now, after three years of the pandemic, a lack of the ability to move around, and stressful grad school, I forgot what this feeling was like. As I have returned to Spain over the last weeks, I think I must try to understand why this feeling is back and what it means. I only get this feeling in Europe. On the way to uncovering its importance, or why I'm feeling it, I had to actually write these thoughts down just to understand them better. All I know is that the fall in Europe has been a magnet for reflection, and it brings back a desire to return. If this period was an important one, it may be important to continue investigating it and why it seems to emerge at this time of year in this specific place. This feeling does not go away, but it's been dormant during my time back in the U.S. For this reason, I do not think my time in Spain is over. Ultimately, I think it's important to understand why certain places make us feel a certain way. Places are just as important as the company they bring or the people you experience them with. So yeah, I wrote those thoughts down about a year ago and... Yeah, I'm still investigating them because I, I I still think there's more that needs to be done there, and I'm looking out at the fall, and I can really feel the fall around me again, and uh, I I just need to I need to dig into it again. I'm not actually, by the way, I'm not much closer than I was then, but anyways, we will move on to the actual podcast. And actually, no lie, I'll I'll just say one extra thing. I think the reason I bring this up is because I don't think it's always important to chase a feeling or an emotion or something that makes you superficially happy, but I do think it's important to investigate why certain things make you feel a certain way, and that's what I've been trying to do, and I just seem to get these same thoughts every year at the same time in the same place, and I don't know. It's something that just kind of fascinates me. It's really not good or bad, dark or happy. It's just something that's there. Anyways, moving on... (laughs) This is a story that irritates me on about every level possible. I'm going to start with the Politico headline just to help you guys understand what I'm talking about, and then we'll get into more specifics. The Politico article is titled, Nazi-linked veteran received standing ovation during Zelensky's Canada visit. So basically... What's happening here is that in Ottawa, Ontario, we had Vladimir Zelensky making a visit much like he did in the United States, and basically you had the house speaker during this event, Anthony Roda, I believe it is, who introduced someone named Yaroslav Hunka as a Canadian-Ukrainian war hero, and he was from Rhoda's district. So, I mean, first off, before I get into the details, it sounds like Rhoda either... Uh, no, nah, I'm just going to say, it sounds like Rhoda did not do a lot of research and just wanted to do this for political and just image reasons. But what, what happened here is during a pretty long speech last Friday, <laughs> Rhoda said this in quotes We have here in the chamber today a Ukrainian Canadian veteran from the Second World War who fought for Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. Then his political politico writes, Rhoda said this Friday, followed by a lengthy round of applause and a wave by Zelensky. Rota also said in quotes, he's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for his service. <laughs> so since then, it's turned out that this gentleman he yes, he was involved in World War II. He did fight the Russians. But I'm just asking you guys, if you were a Ukrainian fighting the Russians in World War II, which side do you think you were on? Just think about that for a minute. Well, I'll answer it. He was basically fighting for the Nazis. So this guy was, whether you like it or not, a Nazi. And so what's happened here is you've had Rhoda apologizing to Jewish communities around the world for basically a completely ruining Zelensky's visit and making it a complete farce because of this. Not completely. I mean, he still had a lot of good things he said there. But at the same time, this just takes away a lot of the importance from it. And this is because he literally led lawmakers in a standing applause to a veteran accused of belonging to a Nazi division. Politico also writes here, this apology followed demands by Canadian Jewish organization Sunday for an apology after it was revealed members of parliament across party lines awarded a 98-year-old veteran on Friday with a standing ovation shortly after Zelensky addressed Canada's House of Commons. Yeah, not, not good. And so what I, I did some research, and there's a Jewish advocacy group called the Friends of Simon um, Weisenthal Center. We also had the Benai Birth Canada, uh, Canada Sorry. And they brought up some interesting points and then I looked this up and then Politico also brought this up. Basically, this gentleman fought for, what's it called, the 1st Ukrainian Division, which was also known as the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division, which, as the Waffen name can kind of lead you, served under command of the Nazis. And basically, Unken, no, Unka, sorry, this 98-year-old... Ukrainian Nazi fighter he wrote blog posts describing his time in the unit on a Ukrainian language website and I mean since then Rhoda has apologized and he said in quotes that he became aware of more information which caused him regret I mean I don't know guys I mean this just sounds like one that if all these other groups could have easily been like hey man you just platformed a literal Nazi or at least a guy that fought with the Nazis and I just feel like there could have been more research here because this is going to just help fuel Russian propaganda about there being Nazis in Ukraine and the West is supporting these Nazi you know regimes and whatnot in these different regiments right and of course this story was quickly picked up by RT and sputnik and interestingly too the russian embassy in canada posted on social media and it says it was in quotes an insult to the memory of canada's sons and daughters who fought nazism in world war ii it's bad when i agree with that statement and again full disclosure all fairness russia's a horrible actor But as we know, Putin's whole narrative from day one of the invasion of Ukraine has been that they are denazifying Ukraine. And I'm starting to realize that there's a bigger narrative to this, and it's basically that Russia knows that in the past there was opposition to the Soviets, and there were opposition movements inside of Poland and Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia, etc., and so they can use that like denazifying rhetoric to kind of appeal to these groups that fought the Soviet Union when they're trying to, again, nationalize Russia and bring back Russian strength and glory, which Putin obviously is trying to do. And so I think this was just a fucking stupid blunder by the Canadians, Rhoda specifically, just a horrible look. And, you know, I, I also think on a historical perspective, this does really show some of the interesting dynamics in that region. Because I I do think that we always assume that the Nazis were all German, Austrian, Swiss, some of the, you know, nationalists in Spain and France and Italy and stuff. But I think we also do have to remember that following the Bolshevik Revolution and the different color revolutions that followed it, Ukraine and Poland were not exactly thrilled about the Soviet Union. And so, There were Nazi regiments that were made up of anti-Soviet Poles, anti-Soviet Ukrainians. I think that is something interesting to remember, and I think that's why Putin is able to pick up on this denazification stuff when he's talking about groups that oppose Russia inside of countries like Poland and Ukraine. And I just think that this whole, literally, I, I just can't believe that they didn't do enough research to know that this guy speaking in front of the Canadian parliament was fighting for the Nazis. It's just such a bad look. it it's, it's a horrible look for the Jewish community. It's just wrong. But again, also Russian media is going to eat this alive. So, so it's, it's stupid. stupid. It's really <laughs> stupid. The Canadians, again, are just kind of letting me down here. And I guess while I'm disappointed on that, the last thing I want to mention before we get into some other things is the Hollywood writers' strike. So I went to bed last night, with some pretty good news. Pretty, pretty, pretty good news. And it's that the Hollywood writers did agree on a tentative strike agreement. Sorry, not a strike. A tentative three-year agreement with film and television companies. This strike has been going on since I got fourth in my half marathon back in early May. Bill Maher had like Elon Musk on like, May 1st or something, and then we had no more Bill Maher or anything like that for a while, and I know he got in trouble because they said he potentially picked or crossed the picket lines and all that stuff. Drew Barrymore wanted to, you know, get the show back going, and then she got backlash and cried and blah, 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 but you did see, I think, somewhat of an anger or growing willingness by some to cross the picket lines and get back in there, so... I wonder if there was somewhat of the pressure from bigger names that were unwilling to keep this going any longer. I don't know. I should also note that the agreement, I don't know the details of it yet. It's still being figured out. Again, this is a tentative three-year one. I should also note that the SAG AFTRA union, which represents about 150,000 actors, it does remain on strike, so we probably, I, I don't know. The, the Associated Press brings up a good point, noting that if a deal is reached with the Writers Guild, it could help bring a deal to the actors as well. Back to the Writers' Strike, though, um, the Economist notes here in quotes, The Writers Guild of America said the deal, which must be approved by its 11,500 members, was exceptional and would provide meaningful gains and protections. Hollywood writers have sought better compensation as well as protection from artificial intelligence. Now, I think they should have been probably fighting this earlier on, just because, as we know, AI has been kind of booming over the last, like, six months, at least in the public eye. I'm sure it's been big and more well-known for quite some time, but at least in the public eye, it's been really booming. And so I think they should have been trying to get more rights, protections, sooner on, so that when this technology emerged, they would be protected or at least know where they stand. But either way, it is good because I have told friends that even I was getting a little bit tired of this. I think the writers deserve to make a living wage. I think the studios are greedy. I do believe that. But at the same time, I just wanted an agreement on both sides to happen because I do think film and TV are somewhat of a a public, I don't want to say public service, but there's something that the public needs during these kind of divisive and tumultuous and Somewhat depressing times is I know when I feel depressed or I'm struggling with whatever's going on in my life or just struggling with my head, I I know watching a good show is really useful, especially if it's a happy show, Uh, and to think that we were worried that we weren't going to see new shows. like There were some people saying it was going to be till Christmas, so I am glad to see that we are seeing some sort of breakthroughs here. And, you know, Joe Biden said the agreement was a testament to the power of collective bargaining. I do hope he's right. Because obviously we have the UAW strikes intensifying right now, mainly over, I guess you could say, generally geographically more northern states that have unions. States like Michigan, where the auto industries like Ford are union jobs and then you have states like south carolina where it's a right to work state and there are not auto workers unions and as ev is coming into the fold there's less parts the manufacturing's easier less people needed a lot of these manufacturers are talking about going to states that are right to work and it's causing a lot of chaos so hopefully you know collective bargaining is a thing and we do see that continuing to work because it's a tough one and now we're we're seeing auto workers also intensify their disdain for EVs. For example, just because it's true, they're not good for they're not good for jobs when you have states that have right to work laws versus union laws because basically if auto companies are losing money, they're going to go to states where they can pay people less and not take care of the worker as much. And so, I think these writing strikes, the actors strike, and now the UAW strike are all somewhat related to just record profits and employees not seeing them and i've always been fairly left-wing on this stuff and so i'm glad to see it kind of coming to fruition i mean i still think there's a long way to go it seems like the gop is fairly split on this tim scott nikki haley obviously both from south carolina which is a right to work state probably support not the uaw but then also you have trump who is planning to go to one of these strikes while the debate uh, while the debate sorry is happening on wednesday night and it does seem like biden is in somewhat of solidarity with the uaw though kind of the center left msnbc cnbc type of pundits like kramer for example are not for this so it's really fascinating to watch but i do think we are seeing the year of the strikes the year of collective bargaining, and I am, I am a supporter of collective bargaining, generally speaking. Anyways, moving on, I want to talk about the civil labor force, the civil service, the deep state, which was mainly a term out of Turkey used about a corrupt state that basically is not bipartisan and has political spoils. And I want to talk about it because it's obviously been a very hot topic. The federal government, the civil service, Republicans attack it as the deep state. They want to gut it and change it. And I want to get back into this again because we have talked a lot on the podcast about the Trump administration's attempts at basically changing how the executive can replace and appoint federal employees. And the main manifestation of this towards the end of Trump's first administration, hopefully his last, was Schedule F, which basically is a legal theory that would work to dismantle the federal service over time. And the idea would be that you would make tens of thousands of federal employees at will. Instead of protected, under tenure, union, federal protections, whatever you want to say. And this means that they would be able to be fired on demand and then could be replaced at the same time. Now, without going too far down the rabbit hole here, I would argue that you need a civil service that is mainly made up of lifelong bureaucrats because they are not partisan. And usually they are just trained to do their job. I think that's mainly true, but kind of the, the right wing conspiracies or just attacks on the civil service think that these people are a problem and that they tried to get in the way of Trump's agenda. And now Trump would basically like to fire and replace these people with either people that are connected to him, people that politically align with him kind of going back to a spoils system where whoever becomes the president kind of has the ability to pick who is in charge and you make the executive branch basically all-powerful. And Trump had actually put this through in, I think it was either late, no, I think it was, yeah, it it was late 2020 before he left office, but then Biden, of course, reversed it. But since then, we are kind of seeing almost every Republican candidate basically in one way or another talk about gutting the civil service from rob the sanctus all the way to all all the way to vivek the fake and you know vivek the fake obviously wants to dismantle the department of education as well as the justice department at the same time we also have the heritage foundation in a in a sense almost trying to reverse engineer trump's dangerous rhetoric and actually find tangible policies. So I would argue that they are trying to intellectualize Trump's MAGA rhetoric by turning it into something that can be tangible policy. And this is happening in something called the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025. And this has been something that I've talked about before on the podcast. I talked about how there's a lot of MAGA think tanks that have kind of come out of nowhere over the last couple of years mainly because I think a lot of America First MAGA Republicans have realized that like the American Enterprise Institute and Cato and these other either libertarian or center-right organizations are mainly neoconservative or libertarian and don't agree with the America First initiatives. So they've realized, okay, Trump's first term in office, he brought in a lot of neocons, a lot of Bush era people, a lot of libertarians a lot of Reagan-era people, and they all just aren't America first. So they have actually created think tanks throughout Washington, D.C. to bring in kind of young, college-educated Republicans that want to intellectualize MAGA. And I've been worried about this for a while. That's why I think Trump 2.0, if he could get reelected, would be much more dangerous than our current iteration of Trump, just because I think right now, He's actually being guided by people that have policy ideas instead of him just kind of on a whim becoming president and then just putting in people around him that kind of served as problems to him down the road. And when I mean problems, I mean they wouldn't let him do the crazy shit. And so, for example, the Heritage Foundation, though, which has always been pretty conservative, they've gone full MAGA. And they have put out something called... The Heritage Foundation, Project 2025. And The Atlantic has a great piece on this. And it basically discusses how this project is directed by Paul Dans, who was Trump's, uh, Trump's chief of staff for the Office of Personnel Management under his administration. And The Atlantic article writes here in quotes, This is a $22 million effort to recruit an army of conservative appointees and lay the foundation for what the project hopes will be the next Republican administration. He uses terms like smash and wrecking ball to describe what conservatives have in mind for the federal government. And before I continue, I should note that then again, we have to remember that Schedule F came out at the end of Trump's first administration when he wanted to find a way to make sure he could maintain power and get people around him that would protect him. But he did it so half-assed and so lackluster that it didn't work. So now the Heritage Foundation, with their donors and their just influence, is stepping in and saying, okay, we will take care of this. We're going to reverse engineer Trump's version of Schedule F and find a better way to do it. And speaking of reverse engineering, they've gone above and beyond. The Heritage Foundation 2025 project has released a 920-page playbook which basically details a conservative agenda, which is a vision for this idea I talked about of kind of, kind of an even more unitary executive theory than we've heard about in the past. Instead of giving the executive branch appointment power, it would also then again put a lot of other agencies that were usually independent under the control of the executive branch. And basically... It would be an executive branch that functions fully under the president. And there's another guy named Russ Vaught, who was a former director of the Office of Management and Budget under Trump. And he basically said in one part of this Atlantic article, in quotes here, the president must use boldness to bend or break the bureaucracy to the presidential will. Vought now, also I was talking about these think tanks. He runs the Center for Renewing America, which is kind of an incubator for trumpian policies, trumpian allies, and it would be one of the guiding policy think tanks to give ideas for what Trump can implement if he, you know, regains the White House, for example. Now, I can see this how it is. I can completely see this bullshit how it is. When when they say schedule 1 is to, you know, at least filter the bu- the bureaucracy, make things more smooth, filter out the corruption. It's all bullshit. And I think all of us would agree that sometimes federally em- employed individuals can sometimes be protected too long. I think a lot of us think government is inefficient, but I think it's inefficient by design. I do believe that. I think when people compare the private and the public sector, it's a useful exercise to be completely honest. But at the end of the day, Schedule F is meant to fight the deep state. We have to kind of remember what the deep state is. The deep state is mainly something that has held Trump accountable and he doesn't like that. So he wants it to go away. Yes, the Steele dossier, the Mueller investigation, the Russia, like the Russia investigation. I think it all took too long and it didn't really get us enough. I do think that we cried wolf too many times during Trump's presidency, and now people think everything's a witch hunt. I am totally fine to entertain those possibilities. But at the same time, we have to remember that it's the bureaucrats in the deep state, as Trump calls it, that kept things kind of going and made sure we had a peaceful transfer of power after January 6th. They're the ones that also made sure state and local and federal elections worked out okay. And I think part of the reason why Trump wants Schedule F is because he wants to get rid of the people that, one way or another, stand in his way. I truly think that is a major, major part of this. And that's why, obviously, Schedule F is the main goal of the Heritage Foundation's 2025 project. But I think it would be very, tr- uh, yeah, very troubling because. It wouldn't fix any of these worries of an actual deep state. I think it would make them worse. And it could even make the system more rigged and more corrupt. I I want to move on, though. And I kind of want to talk about just other theories because I think we need to remember that I think we're just looking at an iteration or a recent evolution of what a lot of conservatives have wanted to do for a long time. From Reagan to Bush to now Trump, for different reasons, all of these conservatives I just mentioned have wanted to gut the civil service. It used to be under the guise of efficiency, free market, let's let the markets decide, why don't we outsource human resources, outsource the IT department, etc., And it'll cut costs and let the market decide. And this always actually led to problems because I think there are trade-offs that come from privatizing or decentralizing the public workforce of any type of organization, whether it's a local government or the federal government. I also think there's issues with taking away the meritocratic selection process of the government. But we have seen states... Range like Jeb Bush's Florida, George W. Bush is president, just to name a few, Bill Clinton as well as president, all trying to gut the civil service or at least privatize different government services and outsource and contract out. And so my theory here would be that there's a percentage of the American population that was already kind of down for this. And so when Trump talks about gutting the deep state. I don't know if every American understands why he wants to do it, but they understand that it's something that other politicians have wanted to do, and it's deeply supported amongst constituencies, and they're like, yeah, the government's big, we can cut it. My thing is that I would prefer it to be about cutting costs and not protecting a president, and that's where we're at now, but like I said, I think there are trade-offs that come from privatizing the public workforce, and talking about a few examples in the past, just like taking us on a trip through memory lane, because in grad school, one of my main focuses was basically how to hire and recruit and bring in great workforces for the federal government when a lot of people would prefer to work for the private sector and make more money. And I found that a lot of our practices now really do disincentivize working for the federal, state, or local governments, generally speaking. Let's look at a few examples for a second of what I'm talking about in the past, because I think, though it's different, it does kind of highlight where we're at. So Georgia Gain is a pretty interesting program that came out in the late 1990s, if I recall correctly. I read a book about this in grad school. But One example was this where it was basically a civil service reform where they looked at market-oriented approaches to look at how they could basically make certain parts more cost-effective and more efficient. Another one under this similar one would be Service First, which was out of Florida in the early 2000s. And it also took a market-oriented approach. When I say market-oriented approach, it means like slashing budgets and outsourcing jobs or using contractors that can deliver services at a similar or cheaper price. And I think with both of these, the one positive that came out was merit-based pay that stuck around. But something that was found in both of these was that they contracted out human human resource functions. And what happened was that there was an erosion in trust between employees and supervisors and just the whole organization in general because what happened was you had different parts of the of the employment sector or middle managers versus top department heads versus just day-to-day employees sometimes not actually working under the same organization and it got really convoluted kind of exhausting and this kind of created a system where people didn't really trust each other as much. And involving Service First and Georgia Gain, which were Clinton era and then Bush era, obviously local issues, but those were the leaders at the time. I also read a fairly interesting book called Valuing Bureaucracy, The Case for Professional Government by Paul Verkill. And it's kind of a very policy-based kind of academic book. But he argues that while outsourcing or contracting out jobs can be an attempt to improve the hiring process, he kind of argues in quotes here, um, outsourcing contributes to deprofessionalizing civil servants. And I think that's really true because I want to step back and say, so Trump wants to make at-will work happen, and they want to get out the, you know, some of the civil servants that were there through multiple administrations and bring in randos that support him. And in a sense, that is deprofessionalizing the industry because people like Trump would bring in like a Betsy DeVos to lead the education department, or you would bring in a Rick Perry to lead the Department of Energy. These are people who don't know what they're talking about half the time. Rick Perry didn't even know that a Department of Energy existed, and he didn't even know what the Department of Energy does. And again, I think my main argument here would be a lot like Paul Verkill's here is that if you outsource different factors and try to put in cheaper or more effective people into a very complex bureaucracy, it's going to deprofessionalize it. And my stance has always been that the civil service should be bolstered and supported so that the best people can come, can get hired, and can be protected. I don't think they should be at-will employees who can be fired based on whatever administration's in power. I think that's just dangerous, and it can make both sides crazy. Like, forget about just Trump alone. It can make both sides crazy. And I've also always thought that (laughs) evaluating—not evaluating, I can't speak— Evaluating the size of the CLF, the civil labor force, should be less about thinking about the size and more about thinking about who is the makeup, who is made up in this organization, what type of people are you bringing on. And they should be not loyal, they should be good at their job. And that's where I get worried about the whole MAGA intellectual movement. It really thinks that the civil service has become the deep state and because it obstructed Trump's way to apparently stealing the election in 2020, it wants to get in the way. And at least the Bush era conservatives wanted to gut the civil service for efficiency reasons, not for like politically dangerous ones. And I think there is just a true disconnect that people like Vivek Ramaswamy and Donald Trump have. And I just think Schedule F could really reverse centuries worth of change and progress. For example, we talked about this through most of my public admin classes. And just it's something generally recognized is that the Pendleton Act of 1883 was really good for public administration and the new civil service and how the civil service hires. Without going too far into the weeds, basically... It stated that federal jobs could be awarded based on merit, and it didn't allow or it forbade requirements that prospective hires make political contributions. That was a big deal because prior to this era, we had a spoils-based system where political appointments were basically based on allegiance, contributions, and what you could give to the person that's considering hiring you, and that's just not good. And I think people like myself and most sensible people think the Pendleton Act of 1883 was good. And we just worry that the escalating vilification of the federal workforce could just lead to violence, maybe towards civil servants. But it could also just lead towards that spoils system of government where the best people aren't doing it but the loyal people, the rich people, the ones that can pay their way in are doing it. And going further just a little bit. Michael Michael Lewis had I think my favorite book by Michael Lewis is called The Fifth Risk and it's a 2018 book by him that kind of examines the transition and political appointments of individuals into the Donald Trump presidency. He looks at the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, and the Department of Agriculture. Just talk about a few for a minute. He brings up how basically a lot of the people that want to gut the civil service and gut these different organizations, much like what the Heritage Foundation wants to do, much like what Donald Trump, Vivek the Fake want to do, Rob DeSanctis, all these people... They don't really totally understand what these organizations do. And Michael Lewis talks about how, for example, we think of the Department of Commerce as just running business and regulating different like private organizations and running chambers of commerce and all this stuff. But he talks about how the Department of Commerce also runs NOAA, which, as I'm sure most of you know, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration basically gives us all of the weather and yeah they are run by the department of commerce and so basically if you gut the department of commerce without knowing you could be gutting noaa which actually runs all of the weather information for the united states and so then you could actually have states not properly knowing how a hurricane's going to impact them locally or what a tornado is going to be like, or is there going to be a red flag warning that could cause major forest fires, etc. Like, he talks about the fifth risk. And basically what the fifth risk is, is that, well, actually, I'll, I'll just read a, a pretty good quote from him. He writes here, if your ambition is to maximize short term gain without regard to the long term cost, you are better off not knowing the cost. If you want to preserve your personal immunity to the hard problems, it's better never to really understand those problems. There is an upside to ignorance and a downside to knowledge. And that I think plays really well into the people like Trump and Ramaswamy who would like to say, oh, we're going to make America better by cutting these programs without knowing. Michael Lewis, for example, also talks about the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy, Rick Perry ends up (laughs) running... And he thinks it's about gasoline and fuel, which it is. But it's also about our nuclear projects, our nuclear plants, our nuclear programs. Los Alamos, for example, Department of Energy. And so when you talk about cutting the Department of Energy, what does that mean for nuclear safety? I don't know. I'm going to read that quote again really quick. If your ambition is to maximize short-term gain... Without regard to the long term cost, you are better off not knowing the cost. And I think that there is the fifth risk. It's this idea of not knowing how important our institutions are. And that is why I think it's so dangerous that the MAGA movement is intellectualizing Trump's craziness and they are reverse engineering his lies and lunacy into dangerous policies. It was one thing when Trump said the big lie and put all this stuff out in front of the TV. But now there are people behind him that actually want to turn this into something more. And I think the problematic part of this is that Biden can't really do much to stop this because let's say he does an executive order to ban Section F or like put something that's kind of the antithesis of Section F. If Trump were to be reelected, Trump could just reverse it, much like Biden did in 2021. I think this must come from the legislation. The Atlantic notes here in quotes, unions representing federal employees have been lobbying Congress to pass a bill that would prevent future administrations from implementing Schedule F and stripping career employees of their job protections. However, the problem I've been reading, I saw an interview with Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016, current senator, He said that he just doesn't think they could get enough votes in the House or the Senate from Republicans to actually do this. And that is a worry that I probably would share as well. But I do think that these type of long-term issues are best passed in the House and in the Senate, not by the president, because we know executive actions are really not that executive. They're executive in the moment, but they can be overturned overnight once the next president comes. But I I do worry that our civil service is just struggling. And there's a lot of bad faith actors out there who don't truly understand what would happen if we did gut our civil service. So I'm going to end it on that. Light notes as always. Let me know about my fall thoughts. Let me know about the Canada chaos. How should Justin Trudeau respond? Let me know about this. Let me know about the writer's strike. Are the actors next? As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great night. Adios.